This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campus is joined with us over in Appleton and Stevens Point. And let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting Amen. You may be seated. Again, good morning to all of you uh, at our campus, as well as those who watch all over the world on television and the internet. Good to have you with us this morning. Back in uh, February, I believe, uh, when we were having all these crazy storms and stuff that were just devastating to our attendance, um, we were in a series about forgiveness, first part of the year, talking about the power of forgiveness and the importance of us to forgive those who hurt us. Uh, I had a special guest come in. Kevin Ransby, who's a pastor over in Detroit, and uh, he came in and shared his story. The problem was, most of you weren't here <laughs> because of the horrible weather situation. So I asked him to come back. He's coming back. He just dropped off his kids up in uh, Minneapolis to go to a Bible college, and on the way through, I said, stop back in. Let's have you share again with our congregation. Would you please uh, welcome our guest this morning, Kevin Ramsby. We have just finished up um, a whole entire week of outreach and service projects in the community. And during that time, we always um, have our kids go back to Illinois to visit their grandparents. At the last minute, we made a decision that, that my wife, Sarah, would go back to pick them up um, instead of having them come home, which ended up being an incredible um, choice for us at the time. Sarah, um, this is an emergency uh, consumer report on West Grand Boulevard. Please. I return my call for Kevin R-A-M-B-U-S. That evening I'd just been working on the computer, doing finalizing some things from our previous uh, work that we had done in the city. It was about midnight when I finally um, just dozed off and remember just kind of putting the computer to the side and laying down and went to bed. At about 3 in the morning, I just remember hearing the sound of this old glass breaking or hitting the ground or something. I jumped up to my feet. My heart was racing. I was yelling as loud as I could, you know, get out, get out, this is my house. It was when I hit the last two steps. I remember making eye contact with him for a brief second, just looking into his eyes. There was almost a coldness 
um, an absence of any feeling or emotions. He was just um, he was just there. He didn't say anything to me initially. It was just he just began stabbing me. Almost instantly, I began thinking um, about my kids, and in my mind, I was saying, "I can't believe this is happening." I tried to block as many times as I can to try to block the the knife stabs coming down. They hit me in um, the cheek and the, the temple and uh, my arms. And at one point in time, um, I was able to wrestle the knife away from him for a brief second. And it was there that I noticed the knife had somehow broke initially and I had a large section of the knife in my hand. It ended up cutting through my thumb and I could no longer hold it. The man ended up going and grabbing the knife again after it fell out of my hand. Finally, I fell flat on the ground thinking I was paralyzed. It was at that time that he spoke the first words to me, which he wanted to know where the keys and where the money were. I told him I didn't have any money and my keys were in the kitchen. He came back mad because he didn't find them. Asked again, where are the keys and where's the money? And I told him, you know, please, I have two kids and he simply walked back in and stabbed me a couple more times. I really began to lose hope pretty quickly. The reality was beginning to set in that I probably will never see my family again. Closing my eyes and just begin to wait and just wait for there to be no more life. At some point in time, it was like I was awakened, like shaken. And so it was at that time that I began to pray for my wife that she would just know how much I loved her and how much I cared for her and how special she was. Began to pray for my nine-year-old daughter. Began to pray for my son, Noah. At that point in time, thought life was over, but I, I heard four words that said, they still need you. And it was at that point in time where everything changed. And I went from complete hopelessness of my life was over, and was resolved to die. But it was when I heard those words, they still need you, that all of a sudden, I was, I've got to live. What a good looking church today. Let me tell you, we appreciate so much Pastor Mark and his wife, Deanna, uh, so much for allowing us to come and um, be with you again. Um, it is amazing. Like, he, he was talking to us, telling us last night that when he does this conference and he comes back the second and third time, the attendance doesn't grow. And I'm like, well, look at this. It, you have grown since I was last here, like quadrupled. And this is, I mean, I'm like, see, Pastor Mark, I will, I'm, I'll help you with that marketing or whatever. We, I, I, I can go with you. So it is so wonderful to be here. Um, it's wonderful to be anywhere <laughs> after a night like that. Um, I just celebrated my, I, I, I call it my 10-year birthday, so it was 10 years ago. It's hard to believe, because for me, it still seems like it was almost yesterday. It's just part of the life. When I was reminded of it, we were in Minneapolis um, dropping our uh, daughter off at college, and we stayed for the first time in one of those Airbnb places, and um, it's right in downtown Minneapolis. A friend of ours had owned the building. It's one of those brownstones. Oh, it's great. It's wonderful. It's awesome. And so we went in there. We stayed in there. I'm like, oh, this is a cool place. And the first night, uh, my, wife, my daughter was, and I, we were out in our truck. We were going to run and get some food. And I'm sitting in the back. And all of a sudden, this man walks around the corner, 
no shirt on, just shorts. And I've seen the look in his eyes. I'm like, that man is high on drugs. And sure enough, this guy walks up. He starts going through stuff outside of their apartment building, kind of bumps our car. He walks over there and he goes up to the door where we're at and he starts looking in it, trying to like break in and get in. And I'm like, what is, why does this stuff follow me wherever I go? I backed out and I'm like, hey, you get out of there. There's someone over there that wants to talk to you. And then as soon as I said this, the guy starts sprinting towards my car and I'm like, I just tear out of there. And it was in a narrow alleyway. I was like about hit this whole apartment building, spun out of there. And I came back to the owner and I go, yeah, man, I just had to run off this uh, guy, man. He was high. He was trying to, and he goes, We've been in this, we've owned this building for 20 years. That has never happened. We've never had any problem. I'm like, come on. It's just, it's so um, I'm praying that, that everything goes well today. There's nothing bad happening. I don't know what's going on here. So, um, but it is wonderful to be here. Um, how many here have highlights of their life? When you look back at your life story, there's like these memorable, I think they say that everyone usually has between seven to 12 like highlight moments, life-defining moments, these, these things where have taken place and they've really shaped you. Um, but there's highlights, but there's also those like bottom side of things. I, I was thinking this morning, one of my highlights um, being in the inner city of Detroit, working where we work, um, in the years we've worked with gang members and obviously uh, people who are, are struggling in the inner city with drugs and in the very impoverished neighborhoods. And I remember one time buying a car for a guy who had gotten saved, was growing in the Lord. He had struggled with crack addiction, but he had been clean and he wanted a job. So we went and we got him this car and we, we said, hey, we wanted to help you. We wanted to bless you. And so um, he guy was doing good, drove the car. And then one day I stopped seeing him and then I stopped seeing the car. And I was like, hey, what's and I talked to his wife. I was like, hey, just is everything going good? And they're like, no. Uh, he went back out. He's out using again. And I go, wow, I said, I go, well, what happened to the car? Well, pastor, I'm sorry to say this. He, um, he sold the car to the drug dealer for drugs. And I was like, no, you can't do that. And um, I remember I said, do you know where the drug dealer's home is? And so they gave me the address to where he goes and buys drugs. And this is one of my highlights because it's just like, you know, it just, I just had this so this is a disclaimer, don't try this if you know any crack dealers and drug dealers. This is just one of those unique moments in my life. But I felt this like, you know what, you got to go get this car. This was God's money, God's car. This was supposed to be used. So I went up there. I had this guy come with me. He wouldn't get out of the car. He stayed there. I'm like, you're a pansy. And so I was like, went up to the, <laughs> went up to the door, knocked on the drug dealer's house. I'm like, hi, my name is Pastor Kevin. I'm with the church. And uh, I understand Tony, uh, he sold the car for some things. And the problem is it really wasn't his car. It was the church's car. We blessed him with it. And it, it's not for you. It's for people. And um, they're like, too bad. And I go, no, maybe you don't understand. I really want it back. And they're like, well, and I just go, well, let me just do this. We got, there's two ways we could work this out. I go, one, you can give me the car back and everything's good. Or two, you can keep the car and when you drive, and, and here's how I do I pray and God hears my prayers. And if you keep the car, here's what my prayer is going to be. While you're driving it, it blows up and you die. <laughs> and I go, it's your choice. 
they gave me the car back. <laughs> and so I'm like, it's like one of those highlight moments where I'm like, yes, God's for me. I'm like, it's like, you know, I wish I could say I have tons of those stories, but my wife's always like, why would you ever do something like that? And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, just I wanted the car back. Um, but then there's those defining moments that oftentimes are, um, I think, marked by tragedy, hardship, difficulties, hurts, where people have disappointed. And, and you saw the story, and I'm not going to go into the, the details of everything that happened that night. But for me, uh, 10 years ago when a man broke into our house, we had lived in the inner city. We'd been, we've been now in Detroit for, um, man, it's going on 23 years, I believe. And it's just, we've seen God do an amazing thing. But that night really shook us because all of a sudden we went from in God's will, doing God's work, to something outside just blindsided us where a man came in there and in the course of a fight, um, I, at the end of, and then the day I was stabbed 37 times. Um, in the course of the fight, it, I mean, so many things happened, you know, from, um, again, getting, falling on the ground, thinking I was paralyzed, to I had a black lab dog who was worthless that night <laughs> and didn't help me, and we ended up donating her to our women's home afterwards because that dog was not worth our investment after that night. Um, I mean, it was just detail after detail of just being surprised and what happens. And I think all of us in life, can relate, maybe not to something like that, but we, relate, we can relate to when the unexpected crashes and intersects with our life. It can really shake you, especially when people have hurt you, people have wronged you. And I'll another disclaimer, for me, this man that attacked me, he was a complete stranger. I had no relationship with him. And for me, I think even my battle and fight to forgive this man is a lot easier, I think, oftentimes than many of the battles you face which probably mean forgiving and dealing with people that you have a real relationship with. Because the closer you are in proximity to someone in intimacy and relationship, the more difficult it's going to be to forgive and to overcome the, the, the battles and the woundedness that can come from those things. But for me, that night was life-changing. As the man dragged me through the house um, after stabbing me and, 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 again, thinking I was paralyzed, there was a point where I prayed to God when he went upstairs and he began to rummage through our house. I remember thinking in my mind as I'm laying on the floor, just this desire more than anything else, just to know that God was close to me. Have you ever been there before? Where it's like you're not asking God for like the big stuff. It's just the little the little thing to me. It's his promise. It's the promise that says he's closer than a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's an ever-present help in time and need. So it's in those moments, I just wanted to sense and know that God knew what I was going through. Has anyone been, wave your hand at me if you can relate to that. Like, yeah, like, God, just do you see what's going on here or am I the only one? And as I prayed that prayer and I closed my eyes and I said, God, and I prayed specific, give me a sign. I said, God, let me Give me a verse. You know, let me just have a, get a word from you. Let me just re, kind of be drawn to a scripture that would remind me of his faithfulness. I prayed, God, let me see angels. I, and again, I always say this. I don't know where that prayer came. I'm not one of these angel guys that you go in my house, I have angels all over my walls or something. I don't know what that, but I, I, I just wanted something. And I said, let me see lights. And my wife always gives me the hard time. Never pray for lights again, Kevin. That's a, if you see lights, you're not here. Why would you want to see lights? And I'm like, but I just was desperate. I just so desperately wanted to know that God knew 
what I was going through. Because if I knew that God knew, if I knew what God had known, or I don't forget it, if I knew that he knew that I was going through this, then here's the reality. I'm okay with it because he's God. I can trust him. He knows. I don't know how, but and as I closed my eyes and waited for that answer, it was the, probably the most darkest moment of my life. I think if you close your eyes now, you kind of see a little bit of the lights, but if you do this, it goes to a whole nother level of darkness. That's what it felt like. I felt like it was this darkness that just came upon me where I was like, I was all alone. My dog wouldn't help me. <laughs> there was no one in the house. My family was gone. The, no one in the neighborhood you know, was coming to my rescue. It was just me alone in the situation, and now what? And so as I began to pray my final prayers, it was those words, they still need you, that really saved my life. My nickname in high school was Rambo, just so you know. I know you can't tell that right now, but I had the mullet. I had the burnt Rambo in my arm that I did with a thinking I was cool one day and burnt it in my arm and it hurt really bad the next day and um, don't know why I did that but that's who I was and so I when I heard those words they still need you everything changed I went from being content and just have lost all hope of just basically saying my life's over all right what's next I'm just waiting to die um, to now all of a sudden like I've got to fight I think some of you here today, and this is what I've been over the last two years, God has really been gracious to me to be able to be this inner city pastor who I've just poured my life into the inner city of Detroit, loving people that are really not on too many people's radars, um, going to places that people, we just planted a brand new church two years ago, we'll be celebrating our two year anniversary in the only movie theater in the whole city of Detroit. And there's only one, and we go in there every day, and it smells like weed, and it's, <laughs> we find nasty things on the ground that I don't want to talk about right now, but as we clean and we make it church, and we, that's where we have poured our lives out into the people. And, and now all of a sudden, I'm sitting here, and I'm wrestling with this reality of like, God, they need me. What's, what is that? And I began fighting for my life, and it was at that moment that when I stood up, I realized how bad the wounds were, where my insides were on the outside of me. And I had to pick them up and make it to a neighbor's porch. And man, I was so thankful when all of a sudden, not only did I make it to the hospital, but when I woke up in that hospital room and just to realize that I'm still here, <laughs> I'm still here. And so some of you here today, here's what your journey will look like. It won't look like this. But you've gone through some incredible seasons and moments. And some of it is, is, are things that have transpired and taken place like years ago. For some, maybe even decades ago. And I shared the last time I was here a message um, called uh, Run from the Lead. And I was talking about how, how do you deal with the memories when it comes with forgiveness. One of the greatest enemies to forgive one another is found in what do you do with this whole it's hard to forgive when you can remember everything, right? You remember the details. Like, I don't remember things that happened yesterday, like what I ate for lunch. I don't even, but it's like I can remember everything that happened 10 years ago that night. 
I can remember the details, the very clothing, what the eyes look like. I mean, I can remember it all. And so many of us, that's the story. We've had things happen, not only just last month, but years and even decades ago. These events have taken place, and what happens is we have this chance and this opportunity to now, you know, make some choices. How do we relate to these things? And we talked about the last time I was here about how we're in this race and there's parts of our stories that are trying to overtake us and lead our spiritual race. They're, they're trying to lead even in our marriage. They're trying to lead in our relationships. They're trying to lead in our spiritual lives. And there are events that have taken place and they've created wounds and they've created offenses and hurts and their wrongs. And the enemy tries to put those in front of us because if those things can lead our spiritual race, they can control what we're looking at, our vision. They can control how fast we're running, what we're running towards. And so we talked about that last time about in our fight to forgive how we have got to run from the lead. And that's from Philippians 3, about when Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind. And we talked about what it means to really forgive, and it's possible to forgive and forget, which means to remember no more. And to remember no more, spiritually speaking, means this. It's not an absence of memory, but to no longer be affected or influenced by those things in our lives. That's what God does. When we sin and God has forgiven us, when he says he remembers our sins no more, it doesn't mean that he has amnesia. It means that he chooses to relate with us in a way that what has happened in our past, the wrongs, he doesn't allow those to affect his love for us, our standing with him, our purposes in life. He chooses to look at us as if we never had done it before. Isn't that awesome about Jesus? Amen. So I talked about that, but this week I kind of felt like in my heart there's, there's another level because one of the next level of forgiveness wasn't just now how do I forgive, but it was I had these questions. I'm going to run through them. The first question I talk about is what do I do with God? And I talked about this because what do I do with God who, for me, I feel like abandoned me, that God didn't hold true to his word? What do I do with God? Um, that thing became me, and my book is out there. We kind of uh, wrote it in a way that really helps people and their own fight to forgive in their own spiritual journey. And it's going to be back there. We just brought a few of them and it's just donation only. It all goes to our church. So it doesn't matter about it, but it's written to help you. But I rock, talk about how during that time I put God on trial. I literally was like, I don't know if I'll ever serve Jesus another day of my life because how can I serve a God who has made promises, but then doesn't deliver what he's promised? Because to me, that's not God. That's like people I know. <laughs> That's like everyone. They, they overpromise, underdeliver. And to me, you can't be God and do that. And so I wrestled with it, and God began to show me, and he time and time again through this ordeal, that when I felt God was the farthest from me, he was actually the closest. And probably the, the biggest, the, the two biggest things that God revealed to me in the, that process when I was putting God on trial was one, the knife broke. And during the fight, how the knife came down, and I had been stabbed through the cheek, to the throat, to the chest, and it was just a human pincushion, basically. And, and as the man was on top of me, straddled me, and he's just stabbing over and over again, there was a point that I grabbed the blade, and the blade completely broke. It was about that long and about that fat, and I ended up with the whole blade in my hand. And it was there that I was able to try to stab him to get him off me. But when they began to ask, how did the blade break, and, there, and, and how important that was, and when that happened, I realized that God probably, now God was into that, I don't think so much, the knife, because 
Remember, the first stab that I had was to my abdomen. And these things, you don't know, but these are abs of steel. And so, <laughs> so the, that knife really broke because it hit the steel. And I have, like, some pretty good-sized forearms. And so when I, that, I think that was all me. But, <laughs> but they were like, how did that happen? Because when it happened, the next, the next part of that attack would have been fatal for me if that knife had not broken. But it just so happened at that moment, the knife breaks. But the other thing that was really in detail for us was they couldn't understand how I made it from my house to my neighbor's porch when the guy was upstairs because I had lost consciousness. There was a huge pool of blood. It spilt over the first two steps. They were completely covered. And they saw I stood up there. I used the walls to balance myself to get my feet, to get to my feet. And I was 100% covered in blood. When they found me on the porch, they couldn't identify what race I was. But they go, how did you get there? Because you had to stand up where the blood was. You had to go through those steps, but there's no footprints. There's no blood evidence from your kitchen to your neighbor's porch. But you were 100% covered, and you had to walk through it and stand up in it. How did that happen? And it was things like that, details of people in the right place at the right time, how God's protection, there was limits to what, God, what the enemy, I think, could do in my life that helped me understand that sometimes God is best visible, not in what, is, what you can see, but sometimes what is left unseen or things that didn't happen in our lives is the best way to identify God's presence. So I settled in my heart in that hospital room that really God, when I felt like he was the farthest from me, he was closer than I could have ever imagined. The second question I had to do with is, what do I do with this man? This was the attacker who broke into my house that that night. And for me, it's easy. You guys went through this whole long series, and Pastor Mark mentioned it. We're called to forgive, right? But I don't think we're called to forgive. I think we're called to this crazy forgiveness. That there's a, in the life of a believer, that our forgiveness shouldn't look like just, I think, I forgive you. I'm sorry. It's okay. I forgive you. Can we, you know, I think there's, there's something about forgiveness that is so powerful. But in the life of the believer, we have a standard. We, God's word gives us a, a picture, I think, of what forgiveness should look like. Ephesians 4, it puts it this. This is what I put as what crazy forgiveness is. In 4 verse 32, it ends with this where it says, forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. See, that's crazy forgiveness. When, when I can forgive someone else the way he has forgiven me. How many have been forgiven by the Lord in this place? Okay, some of you. You got a holy church, Pastor Mark. I mean, like, man, you've done them good. Only like 40% of you have been forgiven. Praise the Lord. So come to live in Detroit with us. Uh, let me try that again. How many have been forgiven by him? <laughs> How many have been forgiven much by God? How many have been forgiven often? How many have like asked for forgiveness and what he's forgave you, like that you blew it again and you had to ask for a redo of forgiveness and then a redo of a redo of a redo of forgiveness? It's like God always forgives us, doesn't he? That's what's so amazing. And so I think what happens, what crazy forgiveness to me looks like, it's exactly that, how God not only forgives once, But God forgives, and he forgives time and time and time again. He forgives immediately, quickly, fully, completely, doesn't he? But for us, our forgiveness doesn't look like that. That's why it's crazy forgiveness. Our forgiveness has lots of strings attached to it. It has, you know, conditions. It has has feelings and emotions. And God says, no, my word says I forgive you. 
And so we are forgiven. So in the Colossians, it puts it the same way, 3, 12, 14, but it says, forgive as the Lord has forgave you. So crazy forgiveness, it's real simple. It, it is forgiving others the way God has forgiven us. And what helps us in this battle to forgive is when we understand that forgiveness isn't so much a choice that you and I can make. It's not supposed to be an option. When you're in a marriage relationship, when it comes to forgiving your spouse, it's not, a, it's not something that you should like, hmm, I wonder if I should do that today. No, it should be almost like an automatic response. Like if you were to go to a doctor and you cry and they hit that, that little hammer thing on your, on your kneecap and your knee goes bloop and it kicks up, it's an automatic response. I think this, when someone hurts you and wounds you, offends you, wrongs you, betrays you, curses you out, steals from you, I think we should have as believers an automatic knee-jerk response that says, I'm supposed to forgive. For me, when I laid in that hospital room after being stabbed 37 times, left for dead, the decision to forgive wasn't even a question. It was a response. Because I know how much God has forgiven me. So I put this, it said, how you respond to the people who offend you, wrong you, wound, abuse, attack, or hurt you. Listen, it's going to speak louder than any sermons you could ever preach. <laughs> and it will determine the quality of fruit, spiritual fruit, I think, that you'll produce in your life. So the third question I want to address to you this time, not so much how did I deal with my memories? But I did this question. I had to struggle with this. Is where did the thoughts of ending my life come from? Where did the thoughts of ending my life come from? Because after I chose to forgive, I did forgive. I literally forgave. As the weeks, days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months, especially as the guy had been, he was out on the run for about three months, three and a half months, um, the effect of the, I, didn't, I, I chose to forgive based on a response, but I didn't realize how deeply wounded I was. And the wound wasn't just the physical wound, but I was wounded emotionally, I was wounded spiritually, I was wounded mentally. I was wounded in, in such a deep way from this one incident by this one person that every time I would bump up against something, my kids would cry. My kids were afraid. I would bump up against that wound, and all of a sudden, I would get angry to the point that I began in those weeks. I'm all in my bandage casts, and I can't use my hands. I nearly lost a couple fingers in the fight. Um, and I was so glad that my wife told, me, her ass, told the doctors to save them instead of me having to wave like this. I can, you know, have five fingers, you know, hey, what's up? <laughs> you know, it was like really cool. I thought that was funny. But, um, <laughs> but it was so amazing. And so I'm sitting here and I began to be possessed by something. Like I literally was on a mission. Instead of fighting to forgive, instead of focusing on the people who needed me to be emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, they needed me to heal, that they still need Jews in my life, I began to be possessed by this man. I began on a mission. I began Googling, looking for this guy. I would spend hours while I'm at recovering at home. I would find him. I found the guy's name. I called the number. I did, paid for the searches. I called him from the same state, and I called, found out that the guy, his name was also a name of a mixed martial arts fighter. <laughs> I was like, nope, wrong guy. I don't want you. <laughs> and so I was like, I was like going, like I was hunting for this man. I was Googling. I would drive around. I would do web searches. And one day I found 
something came up. There was a post on classmates.com. Anyone ever heard of that, that thing where you can go back and find classmates when you're in high school? There was a post that came up made by him. And it was made two months after the attack. And it was just him checking in with his high school. I just want to say, what's up, guys, or something like that. And you could pay an extra fee to see where this person was on the map when he posted this. And so I paid the fee, and I did this, and all of a sudden popping up on the computer two miles from my house. And he stole my laptop that night. And so instantly, my wife didn't know, no one knew. I packed some things up in my car that was not a tennis racket that I confronted him with. (laughs) Um, I went on mission to find this guy. And I drove through these neighborhoods in Detroit looking for him, trying to find him. Came to the location. It was a big, it was like a junkyard type of thing. A big wall was up. I couldn't get in there. But I was, I was consumed with finding this guy because he hurt me. He hurt my family. He hurt my kids. He wrecked my life. And now I wanted to hurt him back. I wanted him to feel a little bit of what I was feeling. I would walk 11 houses down from mine daily. I would just walk looking at the ground. Because in the fight, when he climbed through the window, he cut himself. When I had the knife, I was able to stab him and cut him. And so there was a blood trail left by him. And I would literally walk the steps trying to see the blood spots. And I'm just like, I hope he comes back. I want him. Because I didn't have a tennis racket no more. I had a new friend. Nine millimeter. I didn't have a worthless black lab. And now I had a German shepherd. Come on, I'm gonna. I had bats, I had nunchucks, I had everything, whatever. I had things all around the house. I was ready. I wanted him to come back. And then one day, I'm driving on Highway 75 in Detroit, and I hear this voice Kill yourself, end your life. Drive into the overpass, it's over. And it just scared me. I just remember weeping. And I'm like, Why am I? Why am I gonna, why, why am I, why should I end my life? And I just, I went home and I did it and I went home and I'm just sitting here going like, what is going on with me? Why am I, I lived, I survived, I have my whole family, I have my church family, I have a whole future ahead of me still, but why am I now battling with these crazy thoughts? And I began to try to wrestle with the reality of what I was facing and all of a sudden, I began to come across, have you ever heard that saying, time heals all wounds? That's false. <laughs> time does not heal wounds. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He says, I've learned now that while those who hurt speak about one's miseries usually hurt, those who keep silence hurt more. And I realized what happened is I was internally hurt, and I just began the silence. And this, even though I forgave initially, I began to just see something growing inside of me. I, became to, I began becoming bitter. So I want to kind of conclude and kind of wrap this up. I want to take you on a, to a passage in Scripture, story in Scripture, that kind of was like helped me navigate through this because what I found is this, that oftentimes we think the, the fruit of not forgiving is going to be anger. What I've discovered in Scriptures, I can take you to different things that when you don't forgive someone and you allow time to pass, what happens is the, the seed of, of unforgiveness that has now been planted in your heart will grow 
over time. And eventually it grows up into a tree that has full roots and it begins to bear fruit. But the fruit of unforgiveness is going to be seen as things like this, like sexual immorality. It's going to be seen in Scripture. I can, I can show you racism or prejudice. I can talk about people who misuse spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, and they began to kind of pimp out the spiritual gifts and, and use them. And, and what it was connected to was that desire was bitterness. And then this last one was this, this hopelessness that led to almost wanting to take my life. It's, it's a story found in 2 Samuel 17. I'm not going to read this, but there's a man in Scripture. His name is Ahithophel. How many have ever heard of Ahithophel before? Probably not too many of you. It's just this no-name guy, but let me just kind of... Ahithophel was a man... If you remember in the Old Testament, David was king and his son Absalom rebelled kind of, and now there became these two sides, King David, Team David, Team Absalom. Well, Ahithophel, we're going to see in 2 Samuel 17, he is with Absalom, Team Absalom, and now they're trying to figure out how Absalom can now reach the throne and how do you get rid of David. And so in 2 Samuel 17, he comes up with this plan and he says, I want to choose 12,000 men, go after David, and then he's going to go there and he's going to kill David and he's going to bring everyone back to Absalom, but he will, he will kill David for Absalom. He's on a mission to take out King David. And at the end of that, it said this, after he shared this plan with Absalom, the last part of verse 4 of 2 Samuel 17 says this, the plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. So in other words, he got the green light. I can go hunt King David. I'm going to take him out. He's going to be able to take him out. And then all of a sudden, you read at the, keep reading in 2 Samuel 17, you get, something happens. You get to 2 Samuel 17, 23, and look at this. It says, when Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed. Everyone look at me real quick. How many have ever given advice and someone didn't follow it? Like you told your wife, like, hey, let's be on time today. Can we get there? And they didn't follow it. And, you know, you don't go like, I'm ending my life. It's not worth living. You didn't follow my advice. Or I want kids, I want you to clean your room, take out your, it's really important. Grandma's coming over and, or whatever. I think you should do your homework now and not later. And they don't do it. Listen, no one goes out and says, life is not worth living because you didn't follow my advice. Right? Isn't that crazy? Well, here, when Ahithophel realized his advice had not been followed, it says this, he saddled his donkey, went to his hometown, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. He died there and was buried in the family tomb. When he couldn't go kill David like he wanted to, he goes, life's not worth living no more. I'm ending it. And now he commits suicide. Why would someone do that? Why would someone so dramatically overreact to something that, like that, that your advice wasn't followed. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play CSI in the remaining moments, and we're going to see who is this Ahithophel guy. I'm going to fly through this. The first thing was this. There's a couple clues. To find out Ahithophel, you've got to go backwards and just look at where his, his name just comes up in a few spots. The first place it comes up is in 2 Samuel 15, 12, and 16, 23. It says this. It says that Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor. So what we find out, first of all, about this guy who was wanting to kill David, in the beginning, he was team David. He was David's counselor. Every word he spoke, David took it as if God was speaking to him. He was like that 
on fire for God. He was walking with God. That's how close he was with David in relationship and proximity. He was David's counsel. It was like he was David's pastor, basically. I mean, like this is, you know, it was like David was his pastor, but he was this count. It was amazing. So we find out that clue number one, Ahithophel in the beginning was team David. He was not always team Absalom. Then we go on and we find out in 2 Samuel 23, who, uh, who was Ahithophel. We come up with clue number two, and this was this. He was a dad. It says this. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. These were David's mighty men. And one of the names mentioned was this. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the, the Gilanite. So we find out that he was once team David, but he also was a dad and his son was one of David's mighty men. So that means his son would put his life on the line, risking fighting for David, protecting David, going after David's enemies. His own son was up close. He was David's counselor. His son was one of his mighty men. Can't you see that this family is very tight with King David? And now all of a sudden you're sitting here, we're going like, but how does he get to this place where he can't kill him? He kills himself. What is going on here? Well, there's a third clue. And the third clue is, comes as this, is that he was a grandfather. Second Samuel eleven three 3, it says this, and someone had said, is not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So in other words, David's son, who was a mighty, one of David's mighty men, had a daughter that would make, her name was Bathsheba, makes Ahithophel, grandpa, and we know what happened with David and Bathsheba, don't we? We find one night David and Bathsheba, they had a love connection that should not have happened. And then when David falls and he blows it, you know what he does? He goes and kills Bathsheba's husband, sets up this whole situation. And now, with that as the backdrop, we now all of a sudden, I think, have a picture of what's going on in the heart of Ahithophel. So I put this, why was there a hanging? I put this, Ahithophel loved his family. Ahithophel trusted his leader, King David. His leader failed and sinned. His leader hurt those he loved. I think Ahithophel was unable to forgive. And that unforgiveness turned to bitterness, and that personal bitterness turned into a public mission of revenge. And then lastly, unable to get even, Ahithophel decides this, life isn't worth living. Friends, I'm here today because some of you in this place are committing suicide. You're not battling suicide, and not just even battling personal suicide with your life, but you're, crea you're creating, you're, you're, you're on the path of relational suicide marital suicide, career suicide, and it might be your own spiritual suicide. There's a lot at stake when you choose, when someone has hurt you and wronged you. There's so much more at stake that you would ever realize when you choose not to forgive quickly, immediately, and fully. When you choose not to walk out crazy forgiveness like he has forgiven you. And there's people here today I just don't want to see. And I know Pastor Mark, he doesn't want you to walk this path of destruction and you're on this dangerous path that's, that's leading to loss. And again, it's not just 
loss of life, but it's loss of relationships with children, loss relationship with grandkids, relationships with spouses. There's things that have hurt, people have hurt you, people have wronged you, they've betrayed you, they broke covenant with you. You look in so many different ways, but here's the reality, it happened. And you have to understand, it hurts. But now you have a responsibility. If you've allowed time to go by and you've not won your fight to forgive, you now have a new battle. It's not fighting to forgive. You now have to learn how do you uproot bitterness. How do you uproot? Because the Bible talks about and calls it the root of bitterness. And it's in Luke 17 that the Bible talks about offenses are going to come. People are going to hurt you. And the disciples, they didn't understand it because they said, well, what happens if they sin seven times in the same day? What does God say? Jesus says, he says, you know, you forgive them. And they said, increase our faith. And then he says, well, then how do we increase our faith? He goes, if you would speak to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be cast into the sea, it'll be done. So when you have bitterness in your life that you have left, unforgiveness has been, you've never resolved issues and now you have bitterness, the only way you can do it, you can't just cut it down and pretend it's not there. You have to uproot junk in your life to see health come back, to see marriages restored, communication happen again. You're gonna have to uproot stuff because people have hurt you and wronged you. So how do you do this? How do you uproot bitterness? And worship team can come or I'm gonna get ready. Last verse, Luke 6, just says this. So to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. It goes on and says, give to everyone who asks you. And anyone who takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back, do to others as you would have them to do to you. See, when they said, the disciples said, increase our faith, how do we forgive seven times? They were, it's like this, they tried, they forgave, but then something happened. He says this, you're going to have to speak to the tree and say, be uprooted. It's your words. How do you uproot bitterness? Here it is. Love, do good, bless, pray, give. It's actions. If you cannot forgive immediately, quickly, you now have to do all of that work. But if you do all that work, you will see things restored so I'm going to close. Let me pray for you, and I'm going to ask invite Pastor Mark to come forward, and he will lead us in our closing. Just close your eyes for a second. How many here would just simply, just, just with a simple hand raise, say this? There's, I have unforgiveness in my life that has turned into bitterness. <laughs> would you slip your hand up on the count of three? One, two, three. Slip it up real quick. That's you. Oh, my goodness. Hundreds. <laughs> Father, in this holy moment, this is a house of freedom. It's in their mission statement. They exist to help people find freedom. I pray that in the name of Jesus that this message, this moment, would be a path that many would step into and begin to journey towards freedom, not only in their fight to forgive, but now to uproot bitterness in their life. Let it happen now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Yes, our ushers to come forward, get ready to serve communion here and at our campuses. And as they come forward, we're going to be celebrating this forgiveness that we're talking about. Jesus died on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that we could experience forgiveness of sins. And this morning, maybe you're listening and think, wow, this is all pretty amazing. And you've never even taken your first steps of faith. I want to pray a prayer with all of us together. And if you'll join us in this prayer, you can start your first steps of faith this morning. 
and experience this wonderful forgiveness that we've been talking about and ask God's grace to help you not only to walk in forgiveness, but to forgive others. Let's pray this prayer together. Say, Dear Jesus, you came so we could experience forgiveness. I ask you to come into my life to forgive me and to help me to forgive others. Amen.